like to invite everyone to reach for your Bible, and let's all stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. We're uh, reading in the book of Matthew, chapter 5. Pastor Bruce is on his, uh, just started a series uh, on the Beatitudes <clears throat> and last week, and uh, this week uh, is lesson number two, uh, talking about the riches of poverty found in uh, the, the very first Beatitude. But join with me as I read Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And it's, uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there's a pew Bible in front of you and the, the page is on the board. Join with me as I read. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, we thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. We lift your name high above all names and praise you and celebrate the work that you're doing in our lives and in our church. And Father, we confess our sins before you, knowing that you know them, and we ask that you would forgive us of our sins and allow your spirit to work in and through us today and open our hearts and transform our lives through the teaching and preaching and study of your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, as Bill mentioned, this last Sunday we began a new series on the Beatitudes that we're calling Upside Down. And if you're wondering why the term Upside Down, why that title? Because basically in these Beatitudes here, which the Beatitudes are right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, it's what this sermon is known for. In fact, uh, it's the greatest sermon ever preached because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preached it. It spans over Matthew's chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. And in this sermon, and in particular, in these Beatitudes, eight Beatitudes, Jesus takes the culture's view of a blessed life and he turns it upside down. And we saw that last Sunday in our introduction to this whole series. Perhaps you've seen the movie, The Poseidon Adventure. How many have seen that? It actually came out in the 70s. They kind of did a remake here uh, not too long ago. But in The Poseidon Adventure, in case you haven't seen it, uh, a luxury ocean liner named the SS Poseidon is overturned on New Year's Day by this freak wave. The movie is the story of people trying to escape then before the ship sinks. And the bizarre thing about the SS Poseidon is that it lies in the water completely upside down, which you can see from, from the picture there. So that the, what was the top of the ship is now the bottom. 
The hole is on top of the water and the deck is way down in the sea. And everything is upside down inside the ship. Stairways are upside down. Doors are upside down. Tables are upside down. Even the giant Christmas tree is upside down. And it's a whole new world as the people begin to realize that everything is upside down. Well, when Jesus sits down on the mountainside, and begins to teach the Beatitudes, he's announcing that a, can we say, a freak wave has come to turn the culture's view of a blessed life upside down. When Jesus opened his mouth, the first word to fall from his lips was blessed. Blessed. Eight times, rather nine times he says this word, blessed. And we learned last Sunday that this word means the approval of God or the favor of God. But could any word have been more ludicrous or ridiculous in the eyes of the people that day? After all, they were subdued by the Roman Empire. They were conquered people. They were pawns of an oppressive government. Their lives were without hope and expectation. So blessed? How could these people in particular be blessed? But quickly on the heels of that first word followed four other words. Blessed are the poor in spirit. If only Jesus had admitted those last two words. They would have all rejoiced that day on the side of the mountain for they were all poor. But Jesus said the poor in spirit. Now at first, that sounds like a contradiction, does it not? We usually think of a blessed life that, as one that ends up with plenty of money, not plenty of poverty. But Jesus teaches that a blessed life can be found in spite of poverty. And yes, even in spite of riches. God is concerned about every person, whether they are rich or poor. And Jesus' words were addressed to all people in every circumstance and in every generation. And so Jesus continues with the first beatitude when He then states, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. Now, let me tell you, this really turned things upside down. For hundreds of years, the people in that day, their, their religion said you must be perfect in spirit if you were to get into the kingdom of God. I mean, the Pharisees, the scribes, they had begun to establish all these man-made rules for the people to follow in order to earn the approval of God or to earn the favor of God. But Jesus turns all that upside down when He says, no, no, it's not the perfect in spirit that get into the kingdom of God. It is the poor in spirit who get in to the kingdom of God. Now this brings us to the first of three critically important questions that I want us to answer this morning if we're going to live out and enjoy the riches of poverty in this first beatitude. So here's the first question we need to answer. What is the kingdom of heaven? What is the kingdom of heaven? Now, most of the time when the word kingdom 
is used in the Bible. It's in reference to the, the rule of God or, or the reign of God. And so this phrase that Jesus uses here in the Beatitudes, the kingdom of heaven, it refers, and you're welcome to fill in your notes if you want to, pull out that insert from your bulletin, or you can just follow along in the screen behind me. The kingdom of heaven refers to God's heavenly rule coming down into this world through Jesus Christ the King. The kingdom of heaven. The entire Old Testament funnels down into these words, and the entire New Testament, let me tell you, it explodes out of those words. The Old Testament is the story of the, the rule of God, or the reign of God, established at creation. And the rule of God then opposed by our human pride. And eventually, the Old Testament tells the story about the rule of God regained by the coming Messiah. And so you can think of it, if you briefly, the Old Testament is really a story of creation and catastrophe with the fall of man, the sin of man of Adam and Eve, and then the recovery of that. The Old Testament prophesied about the kingdom of God coming to earth. You find such prophecies like this in Matthew, or I'm sorry, in Isaiah 55, 12, where I, the prophet Isaiah says, You shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the fields shall clap their hands. And so the Old Testament looked forward to that day when the lion will lay with the lamb. A world, if you can imagine, with no conflict, no pain, no death. That renovated and transformed world is the kingdom of heaven on earth. When Jesus makes all things new and every aspect of our salvation is fully realized. Now, when we consider the state of our existence in this world as a result of sin, the idea now of God's kingdom coming to earth, let me tell you, blows you away. It seems appealing to us. After all, when, when we rebelled against God's authority in the Garden of Eden and decided to run our own lives apart from God's rule, everything about our existence was poisoned. It was tainted. It was contaminated, if you will. For example, our physical bodies that we worship in our society and culture. In fact, think about it. Everything in our culture tries to reverse the effects of sin when it comes to our bodies. And we spend billions of dollars trying to reverse the effects of sin on our bodies. But our physical bodies are now subject to sickness and disease and defect and death. Nature, just think about nature, nature no longer performs as it should. And so blights and famines cause starvation. Nature also brings disaster into our lives through, through devastating storms and tornadoes and earthquakes. But most of all, our relationships, our relationships with one another, were also poisoned in such a way that relationships today, ever since the Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they are messy. Marriages, families, friendships all suffer from sin. In other words, all our relationships are dysfunctional at some level. And we commit all kinds of transgressions and sins against each other. 
But the source of all of our trouble is that our hearts are now poisoned against God. My heart, your heart, let me tell you, my heart wants to have its own way. And it cannot stand to have God in charge of my life. And so it desperately wants to disobey Him while taking some of the credit for all the good things He has given me. Let me tell you, left to my own heart, left to my own devices, my own sinful nature, I kick and I scrape to preserve my own little kingdom of, can we call it Bruce? Even though it is thoroughly broken, and I am thoroughly contaminated. Let's be honest, the world in which we live today is a messed up place. And we are a messed up people living in it. And it's at this point that the kingdom of heaven comes in just at the right time. God promised that a time would come when He would intervene with His comprehensive plan of redemption and renovation and rescue. That is the kingdom of heaven that Jesus spoke about here in the Beatitudes. The kingdom of heaven is present now, though, wherever Jesus rules in the lives of people. But this does not mean that everything has already been set right in the world. Just watch the news. Just read the news on your phone or your tablet, and you will see, you will read that things are still not right in this world. Only when Jesus comes back will the kingdom He inaugurated in His first coming be consummated and fully realized. This is why we can say then that the kingdom of heaven is both a present reality in our hearts now, in our lives now, but it is also a future hope that we look forward to. It's an already experience, and yet it is a not yet event. So who wouldn't want to live in a kingdom like that? Wouldn't you want the effects of sin in your life to be reversed? Of course you would. We all would. But there's one big problem. One huge problem. Notice this in your notes. We want the blessings of the kingdom of heaven, but we do not want heaven's king to rule our lives. You see, we're like the people who said in the story Jesus told in Luke chapter 19, verse 14, we don't want this man to be our king. We're just like those people. We do not want to bow the knee to the king of God's kingdom. We prefer to think that we can find some reprieve from the evils that we face and still retain a little self-rule. We look to the kingdoms of mankind. We look to governments who will protect us and provide for us and make us prosperous, but even the best earthly governments experience corruption while others are cruel and oppressive dictatorial regimes. But we frequently fix our hopes on them nonetheless. Man, that's, is that more true now today than ever before? Of course, the kingdom that we flee to most often is the kingdom of self. And in my case, the kingdom of Bruce, complete with self-focus, self-righteousness, self-satisfaction, self-reliance, self-glorification, 
Since Adam and Eve, people have long trusted themselves in their own judgments rather than God in His judgments. Why? Because we want to rule our own lives, even if it means destruction. As John Calvin once said, everyone flatters himself and carries a kingdom in his breast. How true that is. You see, the bottom line is, we want to go our own way. We want to run our own lives and fix our own problems. As one author writes, all our counterfeit kingdoms represent our common desire to rule our own world and order our own existence, not only apart from God, but also at His expense. This is a losing proposition if you haven't figured it out by now. For we need the kingdom of heaven. And most of all, we need its king. We need it because every other kingdom, especially the kingdom of Bruce in your kingdom, is broken down. It's imperfect and powerless. It's just a puppet kingdom, a costume kingdom. And the only way to overcome the evils in this world and in our hearts is by a change of administration. We need a new king to usher in a new reign. Moreover, we need the kingdom of heaven to rule our hearts, not only because our alternate kingdoms and their kings are nothing but pretenders to the throne, but also because the only alternative to the kingdom of heaven is hell. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13, 41 and 42, He says the Son of Man, referring to Jesus Christ, will send His angels... And they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so if you're here this morning, even if you think within your own heart that you are gaining some traction in your life apart from God's kingdom, apart from God's rule, the reality is, as long as you are outside of the kingdom of heaven, you face an eternity in hell. And so let me tell you, when Jesus stood on that mountainside that afternoon or that morning, He had great reason to say that having the kingdom of heaven is a blessed life. But we must remember that only a certain kind of person inherits it. And that is the poor in spirit. Which brings us to our next question that we need to answer if we're going to enjoy the riches of poverty. Who are then the poor in spirit? What exactly does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, let's start with what it doesn't mean. Poor in spirit does not mean a, a poor personality. To be poor in spirit does not mean that you are shy, timid, hesitant, nervous, insecure, reserved, or cowardly. Nor is it self-hatred, or it's not even false humility. That's none of what Jesus is talking about here. Listen, you can be bold and courageous. You can be outgoing in your personality. And all the Sangram people shout hallelujah to that, right? And still be poor in spirit. So poor in spirit does not mean a poor personality. Poor in spirit also does not mean poor materially. 
To be poor in spirit is not directly tied to your economic status. Jesus does not equate poverty with spirituality. A person could be poor as a church mouse, yet proudly reject the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, you can be materially rich and still be poor in spirit, although Jesus does say that it's harder for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God. Why? Because, as we'll see, the rich depend upon their own self-resources. It's hard for them to let that go and to depend on God. You can also be materially poor, though, and still be rich in spirit or proud in spirit. As one Scottish theologian, Sinclair Ferguson, rightly says, Jesus is speaking about life in the kingdom of God. The poverty he describes is in man's spirit, not in his pocket. And the word spirit, what does that mean? Well, it refers to the human spirit, a person's spirit. It's not what we see when we assess a person's wealth or worth, or social status, or outward performance, or intellectual capacity. Oh no, a person's spirit is what we see if we could take a spiritual x-ray of a person's heart. It's what Jesus sees when the Lord looks at the heart. Well then, what does poor in spirit, or poverty in spirit, mean? Well, the Greek word, it's interesting, the Greek word for this word poor means to cower or to crouch like a beggar. It's the posture we would expect a beggar to adopt. This word that Jesus uses, the Greek word for poor, it describes such severe poverty that the poor person must beg for a living. Literally, this person has nothing and is completely dependent upon someone else for survival. It, now listen, there are actually two Greek words for poor, and, and one of those words for the Greek word for poor means you're just poor. That is, you, you live paycheck to paycheck. Mouth, what we say, mouth to mouth, or, or week to week. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. There's another Greek word for poor that goes beyond that, below that, if you will, where you're, you're, you're begging poor. And in the days of Jesus, this word be used for a person who, who was as poor as a beggar. Such as in the story Jesus told of, of a rich man living in a lap of luxury while just outside his gate lay a beggar named Lazarus who was covered with all these sores. And he begged to eat what fell from the rich man's table. That's beggar poor. When Jesus healed a blind man, his neighbors remembered that he, they had seen him begging. And so these people... They're not in just a low-income bracket economically, earning just enough to make ends meet. No, no. They were in a state of poverty. They were utterly destitute and completely dependent on the goodwill of others if they were going to survive on this earth. These are the images that Jesus is conveying that day on the mountainside. These are powerful images. And yet they reflect exactly what Jesus had in mind when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. So who then are the poor in spirit? Well, let me give you a description of who they are. Look at this in your notes. The poor in spirit are people who acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy in complete dependence on God 
for their salvation. The poor in spirit have absolutely nothing to bring to the table. Nothing. They're spiritually bankrupt. And they realize that their only hope for salvation is none other than the grace of God intervening in their lives. One who is poor in spirit is aware of this. Aware of this spiritual reality in their life. They're not only aware of it, but they acknowledge it. They admit that he or she is utterly sinful and has nothing in the way of righteousness or goodness to make them acceptable to God. They are spiritual paupers who know their only hope is to cry out to God for grace and mercy. As one author writes, the poor in spirit are those without pretense before God, stripped of all self-sufficiency, self-security, and self-righteousness. What then is poverty of spirit? It is a sense of powerlessness in ourselves. It is a sense of spiritual bankruptcy and helplessness before God. It is a sense of moral uncleanness before God. It is a sense of personal unworthiness before God. It is a sense that if there is to be any life or any joy or any usefulness, it will have to be all of God and all of grace. And the reason I say it is a sense of is that in reality, everybody is poor in spirit. Whether they sense it or not. But not everybody is blessed, are they? Because not everybody acknowledges their spiritual bankruptcy before God. Thomas Watson was a Puritan pastor in the 1600s. And he describes this phrase rather well. I want to read you his words. He describes the poor in spirit like this. This signifies those who are brought to the sense of their sins. In seeing no goodness in themselves, despair in themselves, and appeal wholly to the mercy of God in Christ. Until we are poor in spirit, we cannot receive grace, for we are swollen with self-excellency and self-sufficiency. If the hand be full of pebbles, it cannot receive gold. Until we are poor in spirit, Christ is never precious. We only see our wants and never see Christ's worth. This is why only the poor in spirit are blessed. For only they are in a position to receive God's grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a theme that runs all throughout the Bible. And it goes like this. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Listen to how God says it in Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. And he says, I will dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah 62.2 says, These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit, and who tremble at my word. Luke 18, I love this story here. 
offers a, a vivid illustration of what it means to be poor in spirit when two men come to the temple to pray. If you're wanting to fill in your blanks there, let me fill them in for you. What we see in the story is the Pharisee who was proud of his righteousness and the tax collector who begged for God's mercy. Now, let's look at the story. Jesus tells this story to help us see the difference between the proud in spirit versus the poor in spirit. So when Jesus tells the story, it's a picture of a con contrast. It's a contrast between those who are proud in spirit and those who are poor in spirit. Now look at this with me. It's in your notes or turn to your Bibles. Jesus tells the story beginning in Luke 18, verse 9. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. So immediately we see the context for why Jesus is telling the story. And why is that? Because there are people out there who are trusting in their own self-righteousness, their own self-worth. In other words, these are people who think they can earn their way into the kingdom of God. And they're proud about it. They're so proud they look down on others about it. Jesus knows that's his audience, so now he tells this story to set them right, to help them see. And Jesus begins with a dude who was a Pharisee. In verses 10 through 12, he says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. For I have fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Not much poverty of spirit there, is there? He just recited his religious resume to God as he prayed with himself, not to God. But the tax collector, on the other hand, illustrates what it means to be poor in spirit in verse 13. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Notice what Jesus said then about this spiritually bankrupt tax collector in verse 14. This is Jesus' conclusion about two men who went to the temple to pray. Jesus says, I tell you this. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Listen, that's as clear as you'll ever see it. The Pharisee reminded God how good he was and then boasted in his own goodness in righteousness. But the tax collector, he confessed to God how bad he was, and cried out like a bankrupt beggar. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. No wonder Jesus says on the side of that mountain, blessed are the spiritually bankrupt who cry out to God for mercy. They are the ones who are blessed. George Whitfield was an evangelist during the First Great Awakening in the 1740s. And he preached a sermon in which he basically said, yes, you need to repent of your sins, but you also need to repent of your righteousness. 
And until you repent of your righteousness, you cannot know the peace of God. Here's his exact words. You must be troubled for the sins of your best duties and performances. You must be brought to see that God may damn you for the best prayer you ever put up. Our best duties are so many splendid sins. Self-righteousness is the last idol taken out of the heart. As Ray Ortland Jr. says, who is a pastor in Nashville, Tennessee, think of Gollum and his precious. The most precious thing we own is our, our self-image and our self-righteousness. It's our golden ring of power, he says. And the whole drama of our lives is taking that thing to the fires of Mount Doom and throwing it in. There's no other way for your shire to be saved. You see, in our culture, though, poverty of spirit, man, that is a hard, hard sell. Poverty of spirit, let me tell you, it's not trending on Twitter. It's not written on anyone's resume. It's not at a class at school, and it's certainly not a seminar at your job. But poverty of spirit is, however, it is the one criteria that Jesus holds out for a blessed life in the kingdom of heaven. As John MacArthur writes, becoming poor in spirit is the very first thing that must happen in the life of anybody who ever enters the kingdom of God. Nobody ever entered on the basis of pride. The doorway is very low, and only people who crawl can come in. Mark it down. Proud people will never understand this first beatitude, and therefore they will never receive the blessings of this first beatitude, which brings us to our third and final question. What is the blessing? What is this blessing for the poor in spirit? Well, Jesus tells us. He's very clear about it. He doesn't hide it. It's not in some secret code. Look what he says again in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so the blessing is this. It's those who are poor in spirit, theirs is. That's your blank. The kingdom of heaven. What a fantastic blessing! And by the way, theirs is an emphatic pronoun, which means the kingdom is theirs and theirs alone. The point Jesus is making by using that emphatic pronoun is that the kingdom of heaven is not only promised to the poor in spirit, but it is promised, get this, only to the poor in spirit. To the spiritually bankrupt, Jesus opens the door of the kingdom and says, come right in, this place is yours. And did you notice, Jesus uses this word is. And is is a present tense verb here, which means that the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit, not later, but now. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, the Apostle Paul writes, For Jesus has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. Yes, there is a future millennium in which the kingdom promises will become full-blown, fully realized, but the kingdom is also now. Why? Because the reign of Christ is now. 
Listen, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places now, according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. We are overcomers now. We are a kingdom of priests now. The kingdom is ours now and ours alone. What a fantastic blessing, right? Are you excited about that? What an amazing, phenomenal, tremendous, incredible blessing for the poor in spirit. But this blessing, make no mistake, it stands as a warning to all those who cling to the hope that they can earn their way into the kingdom of heaven. And here's the warning. Look at it. Those who are not poor in spirit will not receive or enter the kingdom of heaven. The warning in this first beatitude is that without poverty of spirit, no one enters the kingdom of heaven. Listen, those who are proud in spirit cannot and will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so while this beatitude is a blessing to some, it is a warning to others. Why? Because without poverty of spirit, you can endure only one ruler. You. And you will fight to the death to preserve your sovereign rule over your little kingdom of one. Only the poor in spirit want to live in God's kingdom under God's rule. Because they know. Oh, they know. Their eyes have been opened. And they know. They have nothing apart from God and His grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, hopefully, hopefully all that we have said here this morning is bringing you to a point in your life right now where you are asking in your mind and in your heart this question. I want to be blessed. And Jesus says, I must be poor in spirit to be blessed. So how do I do that? Are you asking that question? I hope you are. I hope you want to be blessed. I hope you want to be part of the kingdom of heaven. And the question that you're asking is, well, how then? Tell me how, Bruce. But does Jesus actually tell us that we must become poor in spirit? Or does He simply say how blessed the poor in spirit are? In other words, Jesus tells us that we must be poor in spirit, but He does so without ever commanding us to become poor in spirit. Now perhaps about now, you're, you feel like you want to just throw your hands up in despair because you can't figure out how to be poor in spirit without doing something to get that way. Make no mistake, folks. I need and you need poverty of spirit. But poor in spirit, get this, Please, don't miss this. Poor in spirit is not something that you can just manufacture all on your own. Listen, that's what the Pharisees were trying to do through all their man-made traditions and regulations. 
Nor can you just sit around all day and hope that somehow, someday, you will just wake up and presto, you'll become poor in spirit. So how then can we, you, myself, obtain poverty of spirit? Here's your answer. Look at this in your notes. The only way to obtain poverty of spirit is to look to Jesus Christ and see what He has done for you by grace through the Gospel. Do you want to be poor in spirit? I hope so. And my plea to you through the beatitude this morning is look to none other than the person and work of Jesus Christ for He is the epitome of what it means to be poor in spirit. Jesus became poor and He died on the cross to give you the riches of His poverty according to what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 8-9. And so look to Jesus Christ. You want to be poor in spirit? Focus on Him, not on the things of this world. Listen, there is no other way to recognize your poverty of spirit than at the cross of Jesus Christ. In closing, I leave you with the words of a Scottish pastor named John Brown. He describes the poor in spirit like this. He knows himself to be an entirely dependent being. He knows himself to be an inexcusable sinner. He knows himself to be a righteously condemned criminal. He knows that in him, that is in his flesh, dwells no good thing. He knows that he has, that he can have no hope but in the sovereign mercy of God. That he has no righteousness to glory in but the obedience unto death of the Son of God. And that whatever is right and holy in his sentiments and character is owing entirely to the influence of the Spirit of God. And the knowledge and faith of all this naturally produces a deep habitual abasement of spirit. In other words, a poverty of spirit. Are you poor in spirit this morning? Does that describe you? Do you know yourself to be an entirely dependent being, an inexcusable sinner? You see, the very first step in this beatitude is to define reality. To define the reality of our own hearts. And the way to do that is not to stand in front of the mirror and look at yourself. Because when we do that, all we see is the exterior. And we even try to dress that up. And so we have a false perception of ourselves, not a defined reality of ourselves. And so the only way to define the reality of our hearts is to look to Jesus Christ. And He alone will define it for you. You cannot earn the kingdom of heaven. Instead, you must acknowledge your impoverished condition. And you must depend on God's plentiful plentiful provision in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then, and only then, the kingdom of heaven will be yours now and forever.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, some of us have worked all week for the approval of people, and we still don't have it. And even then, when we get it, we can't keep it. Lord, when will we ever learn that nothing in this world can ever fill the God-shaped hole in our hearts? Lord, help us to see that only you can satisfy. Only you can forgive our sins. Only you can give us the blessing of the kingdom of heaven. Only you can open our eyes to see our spiritual bankruptcy before you. And so, Lord, we plead and we ask that you would help us to see Jesus. You would help us to see what he has done for us at the cross. And in light of the cross, you would help us to see our own sinfulness our own spiritual poverty. And Lord, help us then to cry out for your help, for your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us to continue to depend on your grace under your rule in your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise team's going to sing, and as they do, the response, the response is rather simple, but it's profound. That is to ask Jesus to help you to see your own heart in light of the cross of Jesus Christ and to respond appropriately. If you are outside the kingdom, then cry to Jesus to save you and to depend on him so that you can receive the kingdom of heaven. And if you are already in, then beg for His grace so that you might continue to depend on it as you live under His rule each and every day. Mm -hmm.